Michelle Moss and Lauren Masadowski. We are bringing you our Cookie Bye Peaceful Life, our podcast, uh, Journey Towards a Balanced and Abundant Life. Today we're starting our first of our interviews of cheeky goddesses who are brave that are coming forward to share their story of overcoming. Um, today we have Michelle with us, and um, she's actually a friend of mine that I've known for quite some time, and has a, a, an amazing story, um, and we did some pre- talking about it, um, and it's really actually brought tears to my eyes. It's a beautiful and vulnerable testimony to her life, what she's been through, and how she's gotten through it. Because again, this isn't about wallowing in or focusing on what we've gone through. It's the journey and how it, we get to the other side, and how we find our peacefully ever after. <clears throat> so, welcome Michelle. We are so thankful you're here. Um, we feel blessed that you're willing to share with us. Um, but to st- I guess to start off with, what made you decide to come on Cookie Vibe Peaceful Life and share your story and your journey? Well, first I'd say thank you for inviting me. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing honor. But I just wanted to talk about my story because I feel like even though I would not go back and create all the things that happened in my life, um, I know that I've gained empathy, understanding of people, compassion that I don't think I would have without the experiences that I've been through. I, I, I feel like I live not as a victim of my circumstances. I live as an overcomer. I love that. I yeah. love, that's the term we love to use. We are overcomers and we are constantly overcoming. I have a shirt that <laughs> says overcomer because I really do li- live that out. Um, and that doesn't mean that I don't have struggles and I don't still have pain and things don't still come up again, but it means that I live with my life focused on the future and how can I walk out of those things. So I hope that by sharing parts of my testimony that I can inspire people or give them hope that there's a way through it, mm-hmm. that you don't have to, to stay right in the middle of all of the pain and that to encourage people to kind of just keep taking the next best step. I heard that recently. I thought that was a really, uh, good definition is because sometimes we don't we don't always know the exact trail but if we just focus on that next best step and then hold holding our heads high and focusing on gaining freedom I, I think that. those are all important I love that you push yourself so much so I guess kind of going backwards you know how did your past in- impact your life or your current kind of present <laughs> that's a loaded question <laughs> So I know a lot of people don't like to, you know, go back to uh, their childhood and they think, you know, why do you keep revisiting those things? But I do really feel like uh, my childhood impacted a lot of the decisions I made as an adult um, that resulted in actually some, some other problems for me. So I had to go back and kind of unpack some of those things that happened to me in childhood to try to figure out why I was making decisions in my adult life and to be able to make some changes that way. So I grew up in a home that I thought was fairly normal. I had no idea. People looking at us from the outside really thought we had it all together. We, parents were married, there's four children. We were all appeared to um, be really good and we were all very good at perpetuating that image. People would knock on the door and we could put a smile on our face very instantly and make it seem like everything was great. I think you're not alone in that. I think a lot of families, <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty amazing. 
but looking back, I, I have no doubt that we all loved each other, but it, there was nothing healthy about our household. In fact, I remember being in um, school and college and there was a course where they were talking about the differences between functional families and dysfunctional families. And there was a checklist and I was shocked because every component on the checklist for dysfunctional family was my family. Those were aha moments. <laughs> yes. Just to college. Things. To college. Like I knew there were some things that were maybe, you know. It in black and white. Yes. Oh my gosh, we, we meet all the criteria. <laughs> yeah. So you didn't feel like you recognized that when you were younger? No, it was all I knew. So, you know, again, we thought maybe it was a little off, but again, it was all I knew. It was my family. I love them. Um, so never really recognized what all was exactly going on there. So it's a lot. Um, so in college, oh wait, no, so that was the whole dysfunctional family. Um, the most obvious part of our family that I think is kind of in your face when you start to deal with things is physical abuse. We, um, there, and that was with all the children. How many um, of you are there? There were four children. Okay. So that includes. And, and interesting fact oh, is that you're twins. An identical twin, yeah. yeah. We have a younger brother, and we have an older sister okay. who is nine years older than us. So but nobody she was, was targeted specifically. Everybody was. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I would say my brother was more targeted, definitely, as we got older. Mm -hmm. uh, well, initially, it was my older sister was. I remember some very distinct um, beatings that occurred, um, witnessing um, when I was younger and she was like 16 or so, but then she moved out of the house. So then the more of the targeting became my brother, um, physically, but, kind of rolled downhill from mm -hmm. there. but definitely I have memories of, um, beatings in the shed with a two by four because of talking in church and wow. fearing belts. And, you know, so there were definitely some pretty intense physical abuse, but mostly, um, it was towards my brother. Um, but then the, the secrets that were kept all in the family, um, and we kept it all from each other for many years, was the sexual abuse that was going on with the girls um, specifically. And we didn't find out, even my twin and I, um, it was happening, but neither one of us knew that it was happening to the other one. Isn't that interesting that even so. as twins, with that mm -hmm. secret mentality was so strong that it you is. didn't feel the closest person in the world that somebody would share the room with you. Right. What do you think made you not talk about it? Fear. Um, there, there were threats, you know, don't tell anybody, things like that, but also of not quite understanding what was happening. Mm -hmm. um, it was my dad. He's supposed to be taking care of us. And, like, not, I mean, I, had, I was extremely naive, um, so I didn't really understand what was going on. Um, so. Well, beyond your. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. So to, and that didn't come out actually until I was about twelve, and we were at my older sister's house. Um, my sister. So the three girls. We were all, and somehow I don't know how it came up. Uh, yeah, and it broke, and then that's when we had this aha moment of it. It happened to all of us, and we did not know that. Um, and then from that day forward, it never happened again because we stood up confronted. and confronted. And Wait, um, did you have any? Um, but my mom never knew until um, I was in my twenties. And she, we still mom. kept it from her mm -hmm. for many, many, many years. And you don't think she ever knew? Mm -mm. 
Maybe she scratches some things, but I don't think so. Plus, if you didn't do the scratching, it would still keep it going either. So you don't want to say it out loud because then it might be, you know, it's easier to keep it a secret, mm -hmm. even if there's a suspicion. And that's part, a big part of dysfunctional families is that secret keeping, lack of privacy, you know, we were never allowed to lock doors. No, no. oh gosh, no. Yeah. No, not at all. And if we tried to stand up for ourselves, we were being disrespectful. Um, so, um, and communication in our home was mostly yelling and screaming. Mm -hmm. um, there, and really the only person who was allowed to express emotion was my father. Uh, and mostly that came out in anger, but we were always told to, to dry up our tears, stop crying. Stop there was nothing to cry time. about. No, there's nothing to cry about, or I'll give you something to cry oh, about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so definitely. And then anger, we weren't allowed to be angry because then that was disrespectful. And so I learned early on to, to squash all those emotions because they didn't, they didn't matter or I got in trouble for them. So Did you ever find them coming out in different ways? Like, were you ever doing anything like to yourself, or how were you kind of dealing with those emotions if you're just keeping it in? That's an interesting question. I, I basically shut them down. Um, you were I, able to just turn it off and let it go? I became very good. I don't know about letting it go. Yeah. I think it built up an anchor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I was very good. Even like my, uh, I can remember incidents in. I was teenage years, like my dad and my brother loved to torture us by tickling mm -hmm. us or wrestling and, and, you know, trying. And I could just have no emotion whatsoever. And that was a survival strategy because if I had no reaction, no response, they left me alone. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just learned that that was the best way to survive that. Yeah. And so, but unfortunately that followed me into adult life. And you can imagine that's really hard to relate to people if you can shut everything off and Your pretend like, up mm -hmm. so nobody... yeah. And, and then, you know, what happens to all that pain? It just gets buried because I obviously still hurts, but mm -hmm. I didn't express it or didn't talk to anyone. Which not during those years. something to treat as though she was going to be part of the conversation down the road. Yeah. Her stress build up to turn into whatever worse. Huh. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. So, what was the, the journey like before you had reservations? How did that? Hmm. I mean, you're talking a little bit about shutting down your emotions. Yeah. So, um, well, I mean, I definitely learned that I could, couldn't rely on anyone. I didn't trust. Because the most trusted people in your life, you couldn't go to your mom because of secrets, and your dad was the one who was perpetually. The primary. Yeah. And my mom, it, what's very strange, you can psychoanalyze this, but what's very strange is I was actually emotionally closer to my dad because when there were sad times or I was struggling with something, he actually could relate emotionally mm -hmm. to us. My mom struggled with that area. She was very judgmental, um, and so we didn't go to her for that. So it was kind of that emotional neglect part on her side, so that really wasn't a source of comfort so for us. That warm, fuzzy, no. No, mm -mm, I have no memories of that. Although she's gone just a little side. She's gone through so much therapy herself and has kind of gone so far the other way that sometimes I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> because I, yeah, because I didn't grow up with that. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, but it, I mean, it does speak to her, the work that she's tried to do for that. But um, so obviously I became very self-reliant and, and I found it hard to let people in to really know me. 
Um, if I didn't do it my, if I could do it myself, I knew it would, could be done right. If I let somebody else do it or have some kind of control, then I felt out of control. Um, so I would much rather kind of try to control the situations and, and I like to be in charge because then I can process through and know, you know. And how that worked for you, because again, you're trying to control everything. How much of life can you really control? <laughs> yeah, right? that doesn't, it does, it does. You can't keep all those plates spinning all the time and um, learning how to let go and let people in and let people help and that my way isn't always the right way. And that's, that's, that's a, a lot thing. of work. It's hard to learn when you're used to trying to control yeah. everything that your way might not be always right. the best way to let go. And then female <coughs> friends, I really, even through college, I mean, definitely high school, college, my best friends were guys. That was who I related to the most. Which is interesting because mm -hmm. you said you related more to guys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Maybe women were seen as emotionally distant from their yeah. family. Yeah, yeah, disconnected, judgmental mm -hmm. is, was my view of women. Mm -hmm. And so I... And sometimes over-emotional, and I didn't know what to do with that. And part of that is because of my own shutdown emotions. So somebody starts crying or going on and on, and I, I just didn't know how to deal with that. Mm -hmm. um, so it was just easier to have guy friends and mm -hmm. relate to them. So, um, so I obviously had a distrust for men, um, but I also craved attention and a love and acceptance. So I, I would say I you know, was always looking for love in all the wrong mm -hmm. places. Mm -hmm. But I was also extremely naive mm -hmm. because we, sex was never ever ever talked about in our home it was dirty yeah. disgusting we didn't talk about it isn't it crazy mm -hmm. yeah like, yeah but it actually perpetuated like the the lack of knowledge of not understanding what was really going on right that was what was going on to yeah. us yeah. yeah so i started counseling actually in college which is when I really started to understand how unhealthy my behaviors were. Was it prompted by the AHA class that you took? Or no, it was actually, <laughs> it was prompted after I met Joe, my husband. He's my husband now, 26 years. But, oh, you know, gotcha. yeah, years. I was married. This was at 19, I met him and we were getting serious. And so I said, oh, I should go to, we should go get some counseling so I don't bring in whatever my family, not really recognizing all the things that were going on. I mean, I knew, like I said, the most blatant one was the sexual abuse, the physical abuse, but a lot of the other things I had just no concept of how that affected me. Um, but I just started counseling. It was free at the college, so, and really quite amazing. Did some group therapy, had a, a really good counselor who got to the heart of a lot of those things. Yeah, so. You acknowledge that at that young of an age uh -huh. is pretty amazing. Yeah, she really did. Because that you needed to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, being naive and not really understanding everything, but then yet knowing that everyone should get counseling at their age. Yeah, <laughs> don't want to bring all this baggage into our marriage. And even, even that <laughs> compartmentalizing and having people, we just talk about this right now, we're not going to bring it into the marriage like mm -hmm. it's like a one and done. When really right. it's like a work in progress that goes forever. Absolutely, yeah, now that I look back and yeah. think about all the things that I really did bring into the marriage, you know, I, I can't imagine if I hadn't dealt with those abuses before. And at least um, I was honest with him because we were, my husband, we were dating and he actually came into some of the therapy sessions. And I, I know for a fact that that helped us um, like be together intimately and things like that because because I was able to heal from some of those traumas mm -hmm. that I, I don't think I would have been able to get past in a marriage mm -hmm. if I had not done that initially. But obviously, some of the control issues, um, some 
other things as far as um, craving attention, some of those things still followed me into marriage and I still had to do some other years of therapy about for, to work through. You know, it's kind of been on and off throughout my life where I kind of get into a, a low spot or struggle. I, I, I know that's the first phone call I make. And that's honestly. wonderful. That's being a poster child for counseling. Oh, you yeah. know, when we have that thing. I thought you'd like that, and, Michelle. We go and talk to a therapist. Yes. And then, and then we, we're fine for a while. And there's something else that maybe we don't have those skills or we forget because patterns of maybe a behavior are easy to go back to. Mm-hmm. But that gives you that, you know, you know that this works for you because it's worked before. So hear that. If you got it, you got there. If you need help, we get, get it. It works. <laughs> Oh, I, I think I was just talking. And so I did end up getting married at 20. That's young. I know, very yeah. young. I don't recommend it, by the way. <laughs> Although we've, you know, we've gotten through a lot, but it's, we've, we've grown up together. I mean, we were babies, really. Um, and we've been through a lot. Um, and I do, God really did bless me with a husband who has this unconditional love. And I actually think it contributed to my healing because I had never really experienced that before. Mm-hmm. So he was but. put in your life. For a reason, for a reason yeah. yes, yeah, because he's he's had to forgive a lot on for me. Did he um, come from a pretty healthy family? I mean, was it hard for him to comprehend, you know, what you're going through? Or um, I would say that's a loaded question too. On the outside, I mean, I think his family was, if you do the comparison game, his family was definitely healthier than mine, um, but there's definitely some roots and issues that, that surfaced over the years, too, mm-hmm. that he's had to kind of work through as well. But but see, again, that's another plug for getting some help even pre-marriage if you're, mm-hmm. you know, you have your bag of fun you're bringing, he's got his, and, and, and if you don't work on it, you repeat the cycles. And you right. really do have to understand that to get to get out of the trauma cycle and bring it, you know, so it's, it's another important fact that, yep, we both could use a little something before we go into it together mm-hmm. to bring it in individual stuff. Yeah, I agree. So, I guess this is a big one, but how did you overcome? You got counseling, but how did you go from this broken person? And you mm-hmm. were broken in many ways. You know, you talked about not just physically, sexually, but even the neglect from mom. And, you know, where did that go? <laughs> Well, like I said, I got, you know, I got married early and thought I had all of our stuff together, but, um, you know, more, some issues came up in our marriage too. Um, I had to do, I, I actually through the counseling that was in college was through our, in, in our early marriage, I had to do extensive work to let go of the shame because of an inner belief that I had somehow asked for it. In fact, actually, when I confronted my dad when I was 12, he told me I asked for it. Um, And so I kind of carried that around. Even though in my head I knew that wasn't true, my heart heard it, and and the little girl heard it. Well, again, going back to that most important person that Mm -hmm. you're saying that. Right. So I still carried that guilt and shame along with the need to control situations. But about 10 years ago, I became interested in helping in a healing ministry. Um, it's, it's Desert Stream. They're based out of California, but it's called Living Waters. And it's a 20-week program for people with sexual or relational brokenness. So I thought I could, you know, I've been through some of that. I would love to be able to serve in that ministry. But a little side that they um, told me is that in order to serve in it, you actually have to go through the 20 weeks uh, of the whole group. And... 
in order to process through that, you had to actually experience it. And just a aside is that I've always known since I was three years old that I love Jesus. I love God. He loves me. I've never doubted his love for me, but it was always in a, um, in a, I was like one sin away from falling out of his like grace. Danger. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's a good word. So I kind of lived in fear of that and going through that living waters was the first time in my life that I ever felt God's unconditional love for me. It was powerful and, and um, it, it healed a lot of broken parts in me is just being able to feel his unconditional word, uh, unconditional love for me. I was able to learn about true confession but also letting people know my true self. And it was very interesting to be able to confess some like deep, dark things that I never told anyone. And um, this group of people surround me and pray for me and not judge me. It's safe. It's, it's, safe it's an amazing um, environment. I, I encourage everyone to find, you, you can't do that to you know, big groups of people, but everyone needs those two or three people in their life that they can be real with that and that really know. Yeah, I'm not going to judge you, mm -hmm. just pray with you, um, guide you through. And then about, so that was that um, training, and I went on and, and served in the ministry and have been seeing some amazing things happen with um, people who are struggling with addiction, sexual addictions, or various actually addictions and um, traumas from pain, from um, sexual assaults and things like that, who've gotten some healing. Um, and honestly, the biggest part is just being able to feel God's love and know that um, he loves and accepts them. So, but then again, about five years, I had to go to Kansas City because we, had to, we did a leadership training um, again for that um, that whole ministry and basically they shoved the whole 20 weeks into one week which if the first experience was <laughs> was a lot this was really um, a whole a very extensive emotional journey and I thought I had it all together when I went there <laughs> but it kind of was like it's like the onion you know you just kind of peel back more and more and I remember at the beginning of the week uh, it, during a small group time I finally forgave the little girl inside of me and I put in quotes who let the abuse happen because like I said earlier I knew that in my head that that wasn't true but the little girl inside of me in my heart uh, finally finally I was able to forgive her and to let that pain go and it was amazing and I got this vision of um, I was like four or five with a, a crown on my head like a princess crown and I was dancing around and I had this like light from God the Father shining down on me and it was just his delight at this little girl who had like a dress on and she was so happy and that was an amazing vision for me because in my actual home dancing was a sin um, so we really we, haven't touched yeah. on this incredibly <laughs> religious upbringing yeah. religiosity is mm -hmm. very punitive yeah yeah, so there were lots of rules and, you know, we weren't allowed to sit too close to a boy. We weren't allowed to dance. We weren't allowed to um, drink. We weren't allowed to, you know, there were all these different rules, but it was, it was definitely very rule driven versus relationship, mm -hmm. you know, driven. 
which I think is what God the Father wants is, is a relationship with us. Absolutely. Um, so, in, so in that vision of being able to dance with freedom and joy and recognize, you know, no, that, that's not sin, that God can delight in, in the little girl. Because the other part that we didn't talk about is um, the thing that was praised in my household was being a tomboy. Like if we played football, we climbed trees, I played with trains, I did everything boys could do because that was where we got attention um, from my dad and, you know, interaction. So none of the girl, mm -hmm, none of the girl behaviors were, were praised or called out in us in any way. So again, the vision was that healing part of that little girl that needed to be the delight of her father's eyes and to be... Um, praised for being a little girl and wanting to be a princess that shines and that those parts of me are, are acceptable um, to God the Father. So that was an amazing time and I thought, wow, I, you know, how can you get any deeper than this? And, you know, through that week I'd had some other um, different prayers and, you know, really had cried more than I cried in 10 years because I am not a crier. It takes a lot to push me over the edge to cry and I already felt like I had cried. Well, the last service of that week, the very last thing that we were doing before we left was a worship service. And, you know, it was a, a praise service because we'd all, all been through so much that week and everybody was kind of raising their hands. And I was, you know, in my pew, you know, raising my hands and worshiping, but I was, I was safe back there. But one of my friends, she pulled me up front up um, by the cross and they were kind of being silly, but dancing around and just excited and happy and I dropped to my knees because I got this other like amazing vision of God the Father again shining his light and delight on me but the delight is in the woman that I've become mm -hmm. uh, and so it was got just to, got to have that return yeah. back to little girls that they got to be in the moment yes and you were doing all of it and then yeah. you were able to come mm -hmm. It is. It's and given me freedom. into this group for wanting to help others. Mm -hmm. and, in, and that's your overcoming piece is that in that moment you are helping yourself right. without even knowing it. Because again, you know, there's things out there that we don't have, uh, we don't have control over. Amazing. Mm -hmm. It is amazing. But then being able to use that story and be able to minister to others and to give hope. It's, it makes that a full circle that that, you know, all those things that I went through as a child were, you know, wasn't for, for nothing. That's not the right grammar. So that's why I was analyzing my grammar. <laughs> but, you know, that I can, that God can, you know, what was meant for evil, that God can turn around and use for good and that I can hopefully inspire others and, and also walk beside people who, who are struggling and say, you don't, you won't be here forever, but right now. I can just abide with you and sit with you mm -hmm. and, and just continue to give you hope because I don't have the magic wand that it's going to get all fixed right. today because I know it's not. And kind of doing that, what we talked mm -hmm. about, feels and feels. Yeah. You think those things and feel those things and be in the moment, but knowing that there is healing right. that we have to go through some of that to get to that mm -hmm. place. That's, that's an amazing story. So is that the end of your story? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's always growth. Right, yeah. right. Let's talk, as far as we've been talking about, you know, like overcoming is a constant thing. We talked about like peace coming, whether it's knowing there's a death of a loved one, whether it's that priority or something, you know, in between. Um, life does keep coming. So 
I guess that leads to what other obstacles or what is your biggest obstacle? I mean, that's a big, that was a big, that was a big lifetime obstacle Mm -hmm. was the way of living. Right. So what are some other things? I know you're still working. Yeah, no, no. It, um, in 2013, I was um, diagnosed with breast cancer. So as you can imagine, that diagnosis, just seeing that word on paper with your name next to it is, is pretty horrible. Definitely think I just got through all of these things and yeah. I'm dealing with, you know, my next chapter. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of rocked my world. Um, I had a lot of fear around that already because I saw my grandmother die from breast cancer. Um, my mother actually had bilateral mastectomies, but they were, um, it was because she had had all these tumors. They were all benign, but she just got tired of having tumor after tumor taken out. So we don't know if hers would have ever gone you know, to cancer, but it was definitely a fear I had. We always kind of talked about it. We knew probably one of us of this girls would get it. And so why me? I don't know, <laughs> but um, thank goodness we caught it early. And I definitely had moments of grief during that time. I, you know, I think God had already brought me on this journey that I had already talked about of um, being able to finally let down walls. And this was a way um, that just kind of proved to me. And I was able to see that people are good and that people can help and, and people are kind. Them. Yes, as long as you let them. It's funny because I remember... I didn't know you for very long and you got this diagnosis and so then you know at our church this is what, you know, what we do is we make meals because that's something that's a concrete thing we can do and I remember going to your door and knocking and and I didn't really know you and I know that that was a difficult thing and you didn't keep that door Jojo but but I, I know that it was a um, hard thing for you to take help from other people especially people that you didn't know very well mm-hmm. and that goes up to that whole new wall problem yeah of not wanting to not, be, not being able to be in control of everything. Right. And that, I mean, but I, I think through that process, I really, it was the first time in my life, though, that I did let the people in and did let people help and give ideas for ways to pe- people could help. And I, I remember just, again, I said, I don't cry. I, like, I cried the day I got the diagnosis because you see that on paper. It, and then I kind of sucked it up. It's like, you know, pull up your bootstraps, tell me what I need to do. Let's move forward because I'm a doer. I want to. I want to move, um, and so I didn't really take the time to truly process all of that until probably two or three weeks after my surgery. Mm-hmm. It hit me again, and I started crying and then couldn't stop. But I was able to reach out to my sister, to a neighbor down the street, and say, "Yes, like I, you know, I don't need you to fix this, but I do need somebody to just come sit with me." And just to assure me that I am not alone through this. And, um, well, and they great. did. To go yeah. all the way to where you're reaching out and asking for right. help. Right, yes. Even if it's just in mm-hmm. the moment. Yeah. And so that was big for me to be able to, and to, you know, to sit and let people cook for me and clean the house and take care of kids and all of that. I mean, it, it, it's not like I had a choice, but mentally I did. I had to let that go and be okay with that. And. I think that was a huge growth for me because I'm, you know, 10 years before that, I don't think I could have done that. I would have fought against it. Um, so I thought that that was big. And then recently, even in the last year, we've, it just seems like we've had one family crisis after another um, with my extended family and siblings. And it's been amazing to see how far we've come. Um, obviously, we're still 
got relationship issues, but um, how much support we've been able to give to each other and be able to be there for each other and, and talk through things and be honest. All those things that you didn't right that we didn't do. That's pretty amazing, a miracle, actually, when you look back at it. Yeah, amazing. Okay, so we've talked a lot in our podcast about self-awareness and self-control. So how have you used self-awareness and self-control on your journey, for good or for bad or for anything in between? <laughs> you, you like to try to be in control, but... No, yeah, but that's part of self-awareness right. is, is knowing that about myself and where are some areas where I can let go of that um, and be okay with it. And where are some areas where, you know what, God has gifted me with the ability to plan, to organize. Those are some real giftings. So I have to try to piece that out of like, where is it that it's just my gut reaction is to control? Or where is it that, you know what, I have a gift. I can see things maybe that other people don't. I can delegate things. I can plan and organize. And so I can use those gifts for good mm -hmm. as long as I'm approaching it not from a controlling point of view and trying to be open to other people's input and things like that. So that's definitely been a journey of self-awareness of trying to constantly be aware of how I'm feeling about that. And is it that I'm reacting out of emotions or is it that I'm using those skills that, you know, that are a gift. So I definitely have tried to ask other people for input. I've gone through some various different, um, you know, you can do like personality tests and things like that. But Recently, I've been reading a lot about the Enneagram, which I don't know if you know. I don't. And oh, I've my gosh. That, I don't know what that is. Oh, you, you know what that is? Have you what, heard of it? Enneagram? E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. Okay. Suzanne Stabile is one of the, she's a podcaster, too, but I listen to a lot of podcasts. And her son and husband, and there's been books about it, but it's about um, nine different personality types. And some of the podcasts, what they have is people talking about, I'm what they call an Enneagram 8 which is somebody who can be um, confrontational. That's kind of can be the negative or the extreme, but it also can be someone who is, um, who stands up for people who are struggling like or, yes, and has that leadership skills, mm -hmm. um, is a doer, likes to get things done. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of things in it that are good, but unfortunately female eights sometimes get negative connotations. A male who does the same things, right can be that seen as a leadership, but a female who organizes things and tells people what to do can be seen, yep. And so, yes, absolutely. So it's been, um, it's been nice to hear from female eights who talk about some of those same things that I struggle with. And like, how do you work through some of those parts of my own personality for the good? Because there's ways you can work with it to, to move towards good. And so that's the self-awareness of trying to constantly work on that. Um, self-control. I'm a redhead. <laughs> so self-control has always been a, a learning process for me um, to just not go to anger first thing, which by the way is an eight thing that I learned just um, because we're, we're in the body, we react first a lot of times before we think, um, which is very true of me. So I've had to learn um, to take a deep breath and walk away. And even in like work situations or other situations where I'm confronted, the, my innate personality is to, to just react. And so I've had to really learn how to not say anything, which can come across as being 
maybe snotty or whatever, but it's more about learning to control myself because the first instinct that comes out of my mouth is not always kind <laughs> or compassionate or caring. So it's better for me to take that break. I walk away. I like nature. That seems to calm me. Water, for whatever reason, seems to calm me. Um, so if I can get in a space where I can take some deep breaths and really um, kind of connect with nature and with God and then think through what my response is, I have a much better response than my initial one. So that would be my... We were talking about that um, at this conference and just putting a pause button before you say the first thing that comes to your head because mm -hmm. that's what gets into our neurotic brain. Yeah. I have definitely been practicing that. Yeah, <laughs> like we do, a lot of us do. We react so quickly with emotion and we're kind of pushed towards that kind of ego state. Mm -hmm. So, you know, today um, we were talking about your story and in our podcast has been about awareness and self-control and, and also <clears throat> self-compassion. And you've been through a lot and, and you talked about how important self-compassion is for each of us because we need to continue to fill up our cup because we give to so many other roles that we have in our life and get that role overlay. So what do you do for self-compassion and self-care? I mean, you have a heart for God, so obviously your faith plays a big part of it, but what are some other things? Um, well, I, while I definitely recognize the value, I'm not the best at doing it all the time. Well, I, I think, think we're, all we're all there, you know, because exercise is one of the things that I really need to get back to. Um, Zumba makes me happy. And it's funny, again, back to that whole dancing thing. Right. You know, it makes me happy. It brings joy to me. It's something that I really enjoy. Um, I like the music, and I like um, being able to move and get exercise at the same time. But then the opposite is I like to do yoga because I like to stretch and slow down. Because I am a go, 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 do, do, do. Yes, very type A, that, that I need that yoga in my life to make me slow down and stretch things out and take some nice slow deep breaths and kind of focus on uh, improving myself. And I already talked about nature. If I'm really stressed, that's usually, you know, I need to take a walk. I need to be near water. I listen to worship music, jogging or fast walking, depends if you're, you know, my son says it's fast walking. To me, it's jogging. But. <laughs> I don't, I don't have to move fast to be out there, but um, doing things I, you know, I say you can't, you can't give from an empty bucket. Right. So if I'm always trying to give and give, I've got to take time to fill that bucket and do some things for me. And just reaching out to friends and being able to have those deep conversations. I don't like fluffy conversations. Um, sometimes that's a lot of work for me, in all honesty. So, but being able to have those friends that I can really share my heart with that fills my soul too. Um, and when you talk about reaching out to friends, do you have a pretty good support system? Something you've had to build on because you had your walls up. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do that. And how do you, how do you navigate that? Um, it definitely has been hard. That, that first core Living Waters team group, we're still very close. And again, it was the first time in my life where we were all sharing our stuff and we just were not there to give advice to each other or, or anything. It's just to pray and offer forgiveness and compassion for each other. And this amazing acceptance that I never experienced anywhere else. 
So I would say that's definitely a group of people that I trust with all of my deepest, darkest secrets. Um, and then, then I have um, church people that, again, I've shared my story. They've shared their story. So it's kind of you build this mutual trust over time. It mm -hmm. can't be something that just magically happens, but it's kind of a give-and-take relationship and that I've developed. And I, as I was looking through these questions and thinking about that, I, I realized that you know, out of, I would say there's probably eight to ten people that really know me and the most of them are women now mm -hmm. which is speaks a big miracle of my life of where I've come from and being able to finally trust and open up and letting people in and realizing that not all women are judgmental and not all women are out to hurt each other that we can build each other up and I love that because that's what we prom you know promote so much is that you know the, the queens and the women that fit into the Continuing to build each other up is so important. So I love that. Um, <clears throat> so you had a really amazing, difficult, wonderful journey because you know we'll say all the dark, but it's like just coming out in the light and, and getting through it with <clears throat> a good support network and taking care of yourself. What advice would you give all of our cheeky goddesses out there? Um, what would you say? It's okay to take time and energy to work on yourself. I know we all have busy lives and that can get where you, we push that aside a lot of times to say, oh, I don't have time for that. But that's really important to do because you, again, you can't give and give and give to your family, to your friends, to the people around you if you don't take the time to really focus on yourself and work on um, becoming your best self and your real self and finding out who that is. I, I guess the other part is hope, of just extending hope that even in the moments that seem like they're dark or that, you know, how are you ever going to get through is that there are people that have walked that path um, before. And so sometimes by just opening up and reaching out that you can find other people to connect that have been there, that can sit beside you or walk beside you, that you're valuable enough to be cared for and treated well. That, that's huge um, and that we we can all find God's delight and sometimes you have to look for that because I never saw it before until really five or six years ago to really truly understand that to my core um, is is a delight in me and that uh, I'm not just one sin away from falling out of his grace that he he offers grace to me every day Unconditional. yeah that's amazing Twenty-five or thirty-five or forty-five, but not having dealt with the stuff that happened when they were younger, and that you have to get to the root of things sometimes, and not stuck there, but understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, not an excuse, but it's an explanation of where we are and how we got there, <clears throat> and how do we work on that so that we don't let it affect our current life, our current relationships, our current. I think yeah. something that stuck out to me too is in the beginning. I don't mean your wording, but you said the word like be, not being the victim. Mm -hmm. And I think that's huge because 
everything about your story is so overcoming and so many people just sit in it and let that and be the victim and let that be their life and then it just becomes such a negative down spiral right yeah because it doesn't have to define you at least you know scars yes create scars but scars can make beautiful things too and so but if you just live with this like open gaping wound and live in it and let it fester and let it fester and never gets healing either so when, when you're choosing to overcome it kind of one of the things you said there at the end is it does help you i think find your true self It doesn't have to define the story. It's part of my story, but it's not It's not how I define myself. Right. You know, that's so how did it feel sharing your story? Uh, now that it's done. <laughs> um, that I, I'm excited about it. You know, I, I hope that, like I said, it can bring inspiration to even just to one person to say, hey, you know, there is hope. There is a way through this, and I don't always have to, to think and feel like this. Right. You know, so... Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate it. You're welcome. It. You're very, very vulnerable. Um, and like we say, you know, for all the speaking guests, we hope they're, you know, what you're hearing, we hope you're, you're gaining something from it. Um, we want some feedback. We want some follow-up. And um, until next time, stay spooky.